Good morning. It is Monday, February 26th. Welcome to another edition of the 801. On board this morning, we'll have news, sports weather, and time checks. I'm Kent Garrett. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 in the Catskills, and we are streaming to the world on WIOXradio.org on your computer or smartphone. Plus, you can hear us at 107.5 FM on the SUNY Delhi campus. Coming up, a self-emulation at the Israeli embassy. Find out about the anti-Semitism trick and tomorrow's uh, Democratic primary showdown in Michigan. Plus, Caitlin Johnstone has an essay titled, You Can't Be a Lesser Evil When You're Sponsoring a Genocide. Those stories and more coming up. You are now on board the 801. Taking a look at weather for the central Catskills region of New York, according to the National Weather Service now. Today, mostly sunny with a high near 40 8 degrees, and the winds will be coming out of the southwest at about 7 to 11 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation today is uh, 20%. And tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 31 degrees. And tomorrow, there'll be a chance of showers mainly after 5 p.m. And then partly sunny with a high near 54. And winds will be coming out of the south at about 9 to 15 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation tomorrow is 30%. And tomorrow night, showers mainly after 7 p.m., and the low will be around 44 degrees tomorrow night. The temperature right now outside of our studios here in Roxbury, New York, and we are in the Catskills. We're 150 miles north of New York City, 71 miles southwest of Albany, and uh, right now in Roxbury... It is 35 degrees, mostly cloudy, and the high today will be 48 degrees. Sunrise was at 6.37 this morning, and sunset will be at 5.43 uh, this evening. Humidity in Roxbury right now is uh, 60%. And taking a look at some of the weather in our area, in Oneana, it is 35 degrees right now, and uh, partly cloudy, and the high in Oneana will be 51. Over in Marketville, it's 31 degrees now, and uh, mostly cloudy, and the high will be 50. In Kingston, uh, it's 32 degrees, and uh, uh, they have some flurries down there, snow flurries, and the high in Kingston will be 56 Over in Albany, the New York State Capitol, it's now 30 
4 degrees and uh, cloudy and the high will be 54. And if you're headed to the Big Apple or listening to us in the Big Apple in New York City, it is 37 degrees now and partly cloudy and the high will be 52 degrees. Time now is uh, 8.07, and uh, taking a look at some of the 801 headlines, the uh, top story is that the Gaza death toll is set to pass 30,000 sometime today, Uh, and this is happening as Israel is preparing an assault on uh, Rafah. And a U.S. uh, Air Force member is critically uh, injured after he uh, set himself on fire outside the uh, Israeli embassy in Washington today in protest of uh, the war in Gaza, and we'll have that story. And uh, meanwhile, Israel has failed to comply with an order by the United Nations uh, top court to provide urgently needed aid to uh, desperate people in the Gaza Strip. Human Rights Watch said on uh, Monday, uh, said today actually, that uh, it's been a month after a landmark ruling in the Hague ordered Israel to moderate uh, its war, and that has not happened. And the Supreme Court will uh, hear arguments today over whether uh, states can bar social media companies from moderating political content on their platforms. Uh, one of those, one of three social media disputes that's uh, before the co- before the court uh, this coming this term, actually. And uh, as uh, Washington is uh, moving closer to a shutdown. President uh, Biden is set to meet with the the, uh, big four House and Senate leaders to discuss government funding today. And uh, they're talking about the stalled uh, aid package that aid for both Ukraine and Israel. Uh, And congressional negotiators are racing to avoid a partial funding lapse, which would happen on March 2nd. And as you know, former former President Donald Trump uh, won South Carolina Republican the Republican primary election, defeating Nikki uh, Haley uh, in most state counties and securing a high number of votes in rural and suburban areas. Uh, despite the loss, though, Haley uh, plans to keep on fighting to continue her, her campaign and uh, has uh, v- vowed to move on. Uh, to Michigan, which happens, uh, which is the next event, primary, which happens uh, tomorrow. Time now is uh, coming up on 810. You're on board the 801, and I'm uh, Kent Garrett. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio 91.3 FM. You're on, uh, I'm Kent Garrett, you're on uh, the 801, and we begin the A Block this morning with uh, 
a U.S. story of a U.S. airman who uh, set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington yesterday to protest the genocide that's happening in Gaza. Here's a report from the Middle East Eye News Channel. I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. Time now is uh, 8.13. That, was, that happened uh, uh, Saturday afternoon, and uh, the soldier is in c- critical condition uh, at a uh, Washington hospital uh, right now. And uh, since the Israel, Israel-Gaza uh, war began, or conflict began, uh, in the Gaza Strip, uh, the count is uh, 29,600 and 29 people have been uh, killed in the Gaza Strip as of uh, this morning. And here's more from uh, Caitlin uh, Johnstone about the airman who uh, set himself on fire uh, over the weekend. Her piece is titled, uh, The Most American Thing That Has Ever Happened. Take a listen. The most American thing that has ever happened. A man set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington today. 
He said he did it in protest of the genocide in Gaza. Independent journalist Talia Jane reports that she was able to obtain footage of the incident, which the unnamed man apparently recorded himself. Jane reports that the man said he is an active-duty member of the U.S. Air Force and that he will no longer be complicit in genocide. After igniting, he repeatedly yelled, Free Palestine! According to Jane, a police officer showed up pointing a gun at the man's burning body. I guess that's just what American cops do when they aren't sure what to do. Someone who was actually trying to save the man reportedly yelled, I don't need guns, I need fire extinguishers. This just might be the most American thing I have ever heard of. It's more American than the fake bald eagle cries they put in Hollywood movies. It's more American than monster trucks and mass shootings. You simply cannot fit more America into a single incident than a man dying a horrifying death in protest of war crimes while a first responder screams at cops to stop pointing their guns at him and go get fire extinguishers. If you were to pick a single moment in history to sum up the essence and expression of the U.S. empire, that would be it. The New York Times reports that the man was taken to a nearby hospital with life-threatening injuries and remains in critical condition. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, the man reportedly recorded himself saying before the incident, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. The nameless protester is correct. People in Gaza are being burned alive, are suffocating to death under collapsed buildings, are having operations and amputations without anesthesia, are starving to death, are watching their loved ones die, are experiencing suffering that very few of us here in the West can even imagine, and our ruling class is absolutely attempting to normalize this for us. This isn't even the first self-immolation we've seen in protest of Israel's U.S.-backed atrocities after October 7th. Back in December, an unnamed protester with a Palestinian flag self-immolated outside the Israeli consulate building in Atlanta. And as I reflect on this, I can't help thinking, how many Israel supporters have self-immolated in protest of October 7th? How many Israel supporters have self-immolated in protest of the super-serious anti-Semitism crisis they claim is making Jews feel unsafe in their communities? Surely their claims are just as serious and sincere as those of Palestine supporters, no? Of course not. This has not happened, and the very idea is laughable. Israel apologists insist that it is they and their favorite ethnostate who are the real victims in all this rather than the population of Gaza who has seen tens of thousands of Palestinians annihilated while Israeli soldiers openly celebrate their mass displacement and death. But you don't see them self-immolating. You see them cheerleading for ethnic cleansing and genocide. They wouldn't do anything to cause themselves pain or inconvenience to promote their pet agenda. They wouldn't even miss brunch for it. It's a horrific thing, burning alive. I suspect that pretty much everyone who's ever self-immolated has had serious regrets about it within the first few seconds. There's simply nothing one could do to prepare oneself for the experience of that kind of pain, or for how long it can take them to lose consciousness after it started. At that point, the only comfort they could possibly offer themselves is that it can't go on forever. But the fact that anyone would ever take such a measure at all shows how profoundly urgent they recognize this issue to be and how much more sincere they are about it than those on the other side. That was a piece from uh, Caitlin Johnstone, 
and it was read by uh, Tim Foley. I'm Kent Garrett. You're on board the 801. And meanwhile, continuing with some uh, uh, news out of uh, Gaza and Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has unveiled his, uh, he did it yesterday, his plans for after the Gaza war is finished. And the uh, Young Turks uh, Network reported on it, and uh, they say those plans are, quote, uh, pretty horrible. Uh, here's a report from uh, the uh, Young Turks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has finally released his day after plan, which lays out what the Israeli government wants to do with Gaza after the war ends. The plan can more or less be reduced to Israel imprisoning the people of Gaza indefinitely. The plan in brief is as follows. Complete demilitarization of Gaza, closing off the southern border with Egypt, a buffer zone in Gaza along the border with Israel, overhaul of the civil administration and education systems, security control over the entire area west of Jordan, shutting down UNRWA, no unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Netanyahu presented the plan to Israel's security cabinet last night and then released it publicly. Now to be very clear, the entire area west of Jordan refers to Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. But who would govern Gaza? The plan doesn't mention a role for the Palestinian Authority, which currently governs the West Bank, saying civil administration and responsibility for public order in the Gaza Strip will be based as much as possible on local officials and will not be identified with countries or entities that support terrorism. You might also be wondering if Israel has any plans to replace UNRWA, which does a huge amount of work in Gaza. Israel claims they will work to substitute it with responsible international aid agencies. UNRWA, which has lost $450 million in funding since Israel's allegations against it, has stated that its reserves will be gone by March, absent new funding. And finally, a bit more detail on the last bullet point, Israel Israel outright rejects international dictates regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. And the Netanyahu outline says, asserting that the recognition of a Palestinian state now would be a huge reward to unprecedented terrorism. That's one of many problems that the plan might face with the international community. US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has already rejected the idea of a buffer zone. Egypt has rejected the suggestion that Israel could border, could control its border with Gaza. And the United Arab Emirates has said that without a clear roadmap towards an independent Palestinian state ruled out by Netanyahu, it won't help foot the bill for Gaza's reconstruction. Another huge concern is a lack of timeline. The document states, Israel will maintain operational freedom of action in the entire Gaza Strip, with, strip without a time limit for the purpose of preventing the renewal of terrorism and thwarting threats from Gaza. Now, I can assume how you both might take this, but what do you think of this day after plan? Yeah, it's uh, as awful as I would have imagined uh, from this insane right-wing government of Israel. Um, so let's break down all the ways that it's terrible. Now, it goes from a quasi-occupation open air prison to full boat, complete prison. Uh, no one to help you, we're your guards, you can't get, go out of Egypt, you're totally trapped. And we're removing UNRWA who is helping you with humanitarian crisis that we created and has been helping you in general. So there's no one to help you, you're all prisoners. And the point of this is complete humiliation 
and and desperation. And the idea here is we're going to teach them that they can never raise their heads to us. And yeah. and we make them a defeated people and then we rule over them. And we slowly encroach on their land and take more and more and more and that's the buffer zone. And so you think they're just gonna create a buffer zone and not put settlers in it? No, they're gonna steal that land. They're gonna put settlers in it. Ben Gavir and other right-wing zealot fascists in the Israeli government have often talked about ethnically cleansing the Palestinians, driving them out of the Gaza and replacing them with settlers. So this is as macabre and disgusting and destructive a plan as you could imagine. This is the Israelis becoming permanent prison guards over the Palestinians. If you think this is what do you think this is what Israel was created for? To set up mm. camps where they oversee millions of people in ghettos that have no hope, no sovereignty, no freedom, and their oppressors are the Israelis. This is what Israel was set up for? No, you've lost the thread. You lost the whole point. Israel was supposed to be a safe haven. And you think it keeps you safe? to permanently occupy five million people. What kind of a lunatic would come to that conclusion? You know what brings you safety? Peace. You did a peace deal with Egypt, it worked. 40 years of peace, no one's ever fired a rocket from Egypt. That works, it gets you a safe haven if you're interested in a safe haven. But if you're interested in oppression and hurting other people, well, that's Netanyahu and Ben Gavir and all those monsters in that right-wing government of Israel. And Israel, you gotta make a decision. I mean, they say, oh, we'll have an election after the war is over. And Netanyahu says the war is never gonna be over. And we're never gonna give the Palestinians a state. We're the bad guys. When you say, I'm not ever going to give another set of people their freedom, you're declaring, I'm the bad guy. I am the oppressor. Hey guys, it's not a question. I don't care what your feelings are about it. It's just a fact. You can't say, if I said, hey, you know what? I'm gonna rule over five million Chinese people and they're gonna be my goddamn servants and they'll live in an open air prison. I'll control everything that they do. They'll have no freedom and they won't be able to decide a goddamn thing. And I'm gonna take away all humanitarian aid so that they are so desperate for my little crumbs and that way I'll get to control them. You don't get to say, hey, I love Chinese people. I can't believe Chinese people are against me. And I'm, I'm the good guy. No, you don't get to say any of that. And I believe that Israel can be the good guys. Yeah. But, but you've got to get the peace and you've got to let them go. I don't care what fairy tales you told yourself about, oh, we offered them a peace deal 75 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. Oh, no, you say, and all peace deals that we offer are by definition awesome. And even if it said to take a giant part of their land, it was they should have taken it. And since they didn't take it, they deserve imprisonment for the rest of their lives and humiliation for the rest of their lives. No, no, if you're occupying in the way that they are suggesting here, you're saying Israel would like to be permanently the bad guy. And that is a terrible thing for Israel, let alone the poor Palestinians there. I mean, is there no end to their suffering? Is there no one in the world who cares? And so it's disgusting what's happening to the Palestinians. And if your heart doesn't break for them, you lost the thread somewhere, man. You lost the thread. You gotta get back to sanity and decency and morality. And this plan is not within continents of that.
Well, my heart keeps breaking again and again and again. Every single time I've joined you all over the last few months, um, I've, it just feels like it's gotten worse and worse. And um, I just want to tell you both how much I appreciate both your courage. Um, I've been seeing you, Jenk, mix it up with some pretty heavy folks on Piers Morgan and other networks. And I appreciate your courage here. And I also want to direct all uh, viewers here to also look at the great work of Norman Finkelstein, who is Jewish and is thoroughly researched on this issue and has been writing about it for decades, you know. And um, uh, my heart also breaks, of course, first and foremost for all my Palestinian brothers and sisters, but it actually also breaks for my Israeli and Jewish brothers and sisters. What Netanyahu is doing is imperiling Jewish people all around the planet and imperiling Israelis. And I hope at some point people in Israel and Americans writ large, well, I think we all do, we primarily do support a ceasefire, will realize this. Um, this situation is getting closer and closer to a District 9 type of situation. If you ever saw that great movie, uh, people who are considered aliens being locked up in, in cages. And um, first, the Israeli government, just a little history on this. First, the Israeli state and the IDF said, you all go south, the southern part of Gaza, and you're safe there. And massacred people in the north. Then they started moving more and more south, and everyone was like, wait a second, you told us to go south. Then they said, go to Rafah, that's where the refugee camp is, as if 2.5 million people can live in some place with no infrastructure, no buildings, family members dead, etc. Now they're attacking Rafah. I literally have friends that are trying to get out right now across Rafah, and it's being attacked severely, so there's nowhere for these people to go. So then it's eminently clear what the vision is. The vision is, flush or kill as many as possible or flush them out and the rest put in these sort of district nine cage prisons. Um, and in the meantime, there are specious, still unverified claims that UNRWA or UNRWA, you all call it, was somehow infiltrated by Hamas. But they just keep saying that again and again. Where is their evidence? They're excellent at propaganda, but where's their evidence on this? In the meantime, during this campaign, many journalists have been murdered. Many healthcare workers have been murdered. Of, of, of all races and ethnicities who are there in Gaza. Many UN staff have been murdered. And in the meantime, Algeria called, I, I think you all reported on this, for a ceasefire, introduced a UN resolution, and the US said it would veto it in the Security Council right away. So Blinken may say that he doesn't, doesn't agree with all of this, but it's all about actions, not words. Instead, I would actually, if we wanna look at real righteous words on this issue, I would listen to President Lula from Brazil and his comments on this matter. Yeah, yeah. so I, I want to build off of what uh, Ramesh is saying. First of all, UNRWA, uh, the charges that Israel uh, leveled against them uh, was pure propaganda. Channel 4 in the UK uh, not only had an excellent report showing that uh, they actually got the documents that the Israelis handed in, it had zero evidence, none. And so, and then they questioned a couple of Israeli representatives, and the Israeli representatives basically admitted they have no evidence. They're like, it's great evidence. We it's secret though. It's super secret. They're like, well, you said the UN should shut it down. So if you have any evidence, you'd give it to the UN so they could shut it down, right? They're like, yeah, no, we're just going to keep it ourselves. Yep. Super secret. <laughs> Absurd. They're totally lying. And why? Think about how monstrous that is. These are the only people who give aid, food, medicine. To Palestinians, they're gonna die without them. They're gonna—they're not gonna have the food, the medicine. They're not gonna have anyone to help them at all. And that's the point. And that's the point. 
their last piece of help, Israeli propaganda, took away $400 million. And the sick US government and the sick Western governments go along with this ruse. They know there's no evidence and they pulled the funding anyway. They know those Palestinians are going to be brutalized without UNRWA. And they'll get yeah, good, God, yeah. And then they'll see this awful, it's a plan for it to create a giant ghetto. You can call it anything you like, it doesn't matter, that's what it is. And no one can argue it's not a ghetto under this plan. Which literally is a reference to Jewish encampments and concentration if, camps. If there was yeah. Jews in that ghetto instead of Palestinians, no one in America would accept it and we shouldn't. We would go to war to protect those people, but it's Palestinians, good, live there. And oh yeah, let, well, let's help them lie about UNRWA. Let's pull the NEA they have. And this last thing is, Netanyahu says, well, if we do, uh, do peace now, it would reward the terrorist Hamas. Well, if we don't do peace, it rewards the terrorist Netanyahu, who has killed 25 times the number of civilians that Hamas has. And how about Yigal Amir? Yigal Amir was the most effective terrorist of my lifetime. He murdered Yitzhak Rabin, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, a Jewish fundamentalist nut job with one of the worst people on planet Earth. He kills the Israeli Prime Minister. And well, isn't it rewarding him that Israel then didn't do peace? Yigal Amir got exactly what he wanted. He wanted war and endless humiliation of Palestinians and endless conflict so that Israel could never be safe. And you rewarded him, and who did that? Netanyahu did that. He rewarded the terrorist Amir for murdering an Israeli prime minister by not doing peace. Going, good job, thank you for murdering my political opponent. Now I can, we can do 20 more years of war. So you know who rewards terrorists the most? Benjamin Netanyahu. There are good people in Israel, you need to remove them. If you do not remove him from power, you're never gonna have anything but endless war. And, and I, I don't care how you feel about it. I'm your friend and I'm trying to tell you the reality to snap you out of it because you're so blinded. The rest of the world is hating you because of this. Because of this, not because oh they already hated us, they already, oh, they, they're biased, they're biased against us. No, they see you brutalizing these people, the government of Israel doing this right in front of all of our eyes. Yeah. And you think that helps Israelis? You think that helps Jews across the world? Are you insane? As a friend, I'm telling you, get out of there, don't do that. So you gotta have an election and you gotta put someone else in. This isn't a plan, this is a plan for permanent oppression and turning Israel into one of the worst, most despised nations on earth. Don't do that to Israel and don't do that to the Palestinians. Time now is uh, 8.34, that was a piece from the uh, TYT uh, network. I'm Kent Garrett, you're on board the 801. Time now is 8.34, I'm Kent Garrett, and now we go to Michigan, which tomorrow has its primary, and progressives in Michigan are pushing Democrats to vote against President Biden in the primary due to his position on the Israel-Hamas Israel war and conflict. 
uh, political now political strategist Joel Payne and Chuck Roca joined uh, 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 CBS to uh, talk about what we can expect and what the predictions are for uh, tomorrow. Uh, take a listen. We want to bring in two guys who know a thing or two about uh, everything we've been discussing this half hour, Joel Payne and Chuck Rocha. Joel, a Democratic strategist and CBS News contributor. Chuck Rocha, Democratic strategist, former senior advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, and the only man allowed to wear headgear when on <laughs> set here in Washington. Gentlemen, good to see both of you. Uh, for you guys and Democrats, uh, South Carolina happens this Saturday. That's a Republican prom. It's Michigan next Tuesday, and the machinations of progressives in that state trying to cause some trouble and take advantage of that state's uncommitted option, which is like the fifth option on the ballot. Looks like it's picking up some steam and could cause some headaches for the president, right, Joel? Yeah, I think, look, there's obviously a lot of energy and a lot of frustration and emotion about what's going on in Gaza. I think Michigan kind of is seen as ground zero for the response to that. I think we shouldn't miss the fact that it's not just Michigan, by the way. There's young voters. There's voters who care about what's happening overseas all over the country. But I think Michigan will be an interesting uh, test case for it. Um, I wonder if uh, the folks there are maybe betting a little bit too much um, on the fact that there isn't strong support for the president. You just had Congresswoman Debbie Dingell on, and she talked about the strong support in the state for the president. I think he expects to show up pretty strong in that primary. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a threshold, Chuck, at which the White House and his campaign would even start to sweat? Look, I think that they're going to sweat every day from now to the election, right? Like you have a guy that's running that he's done a lot of great things, but polls just continue not to get better for him, right? Even though I think most Democrats think he's done a good job. I've been in Michigan before. I remind everybody the Bernie Sanders Hillary surprise in 2016 when you have folks who aren't really happy and they've got another place to go and they're not dyed in the wool yellow dog Democrats like me, they can participate. And that's why we're covering this. So anything can happen in Michigan. I would remind everyone of that. You both uh, have been watching this sort of ongoing debate over whether a third party or other party option could drag just enough support away for the president, either at the state level or nationally. And both of you seem to be pouring cold water on the theory that this is ever going to matter. Oh, I pour cold water on the fact that a third party can win, but they can certainly cause havoc. I worked on Hillary in 2016, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, 2000. We saw what happened with Ralph Nader. Um, you've got no labels. You've got these other... Um, third-party entities, I think a good point to bring up is the fact they've got to get ballot access in enough places, which is still TBD. But the fact that the president is going to have to fight from um, his left flank or his outside flank is probably concerning to the folks in Wilmington. Let's be clear. This only matters in about six states. Pennsylvania, Which Wisconsin, one? Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, maybe Georgia. North okay, Carolina. that's where it matters. If North they're on Carolina. the ballot there, North Carolina for sure. Yeah. But if they're on the ballot there, they can siphon off enough votes to where it becomes really problematic in a place where you only won by 10,000 votes, 20,000 votes. If they're not on the ballot, don't talk to me about it. Uh, even in, in places... That's the thing. I mean, one of the things our polling director, Anthony Salvante, was reminding me today that often for Democrats, at least, this early on, if it's showing up in the polling, someone's saying they want to vote for RFK or Cornell West, it's less that they're interested in that and more just general dissatisfaction with the incumbent Democrat. Here's the best news for the president. The fall off that he has seen in his public opinion ratings, it's which traditional Democratic constituencies. And I think you would expect a lot of those folks to come home 
But he's got to earn those votes. He can't count on them as just turnout universes. He's got to persuade, do a lot of base persuasion this time around. There's a lot of people on the couches now just being a quarterback and doing all the things that they do. And Joe Biden's beat me in a primary before when I thought I had this thing made. I was measuring the drapes in the White House. Let me be remember. clear. Remember <laughs> yeah. that time with us in Iowa? Uh -huh. I don't underestimate Joe Biden anymore. Now, it's easy to say, all oh, they've underestimated, and he just does it. I was talking in the green room to Joe, and I was like, I lost states to Joe Biden on Super Tuesday. Four years ago, we had zero staff. Momentum does matter in these things, and organization matters, and other things matter. But these third-party candidates can be a pain in the you-know-what if they get on the ballot in a place like Pennsylvania, even though the economy's doing better and the stock market's doing better and all the things. How long do they tolerate the griping and groaning, though, before they have to get a little more worried? I think that you're going to constantly, because of his age and because it's Donald Trump, see this from now till November. Right. It's like the blocking and tackling that nobody wants to cover is the things that you got to have. You have to have a strong turnout operation in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Detroit. And if you lose five points of the black vote, you're in trouble. We both talk about Latino votes and how it's a persuadable universe. you got to bring that home in Nevada and Arizona or this whole thing is over. Yeah, and the last quickly. thing I would just say really quickly, the couch. Right, you're hearing about That's Biden versus deal. Trump versus right. the couch. Making sure people don't stay home, just as important as people not showing up for a third party or for Donald Trump. True that. We've got some time to go, but it's good to check in with both of you, Joel Payne and Chuck Rocha. Thank you very much. Time now is uh, coming up on 8.40, and uh, that analyst uh, Chuck Rocha uh, wears a big cowboy hat. So that was sort of the joke uh, in the beginning of the piece. Uh, I think he's from Texas, originally from Texas. Time now is, as I say, 8.40, and you're on board the 801. Time now is uh, coming up on uh, 8.41. You're on board the 801. And, and now we have another uh, Israel sort of uh, uh, Gaza piece. And it's from, uh, it's from Dana Takari, who is a wonderful correspondent for the Al Jazeera or the AJ Plus uh, news channel. And she talks about criticizing Israel or calling for a ceasefire in Gaza she says it's not really anti-Semitic, uh, but many people say it is. Uh, many people in Israel and many of Israeli allies say it is. And there's a guy, Sh Shulamat Alani, is a former uh, Israeli education minister, who says this. He says, quote, anti-Semitism is it's a trick. We always use it to stifle legitimate criticisms of Zionism and Israel. So that's, that's sort of the catch-22 or the conflict. But here's a report from the AJ News channel to explain. 
These days, criticizing Israel gets backlash like this. When the ICC investigates Israel for fake war crimes, this is pure anti-Semitism. From the river to the sea is anti-Semitic. Those calling for ceasefire are legitimizing anti-Semitism. But here's the thing. Investigating Israel for war crimes or demanding a ceasefire in Gaza is not anti-Semitic, which is hatred of Jews. It's criticism of the state of Israel, and the two are not the same thing. So how did criticism of Israel and charges of anti-Semitism come to be interchangeable, and what have the consequences been? I spoke to two Jewish experts who work closely on the issue. This has become a well-worn strategy of the Israeli government and its defenders to conflate all criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. That's Simone Zimmerman, who's with the Diaspora Alliance. It's an organization that fights anti-Semitism and its misuse. It's an insult to Jewish history, and it cheapens the idea of what these words actually mean. And this is Lara Friedman, the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and a leading expert on Israel and Palestine. So if you can't win the arguments over Israeli policy, you're going to have to just shut down the criticism of Israel. There's something so twisted about where we are today. So how did we get here? Well, if you listen to the pro-Israel establishment and its supporters, you hear the conflation of two very distinct terms. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism period, full stop. Anti-Zionism is the modern mutated form of anti-Semitism. The high anti-Semitism now is anti-Zionism. Okay, let's first unpack the definition of these terms. Anti-Semitism means hatred, prejudice, threats, and violence against Jews because they are Jewish. It's very real and it exists. Anti-Semitism in Europe is what led to the Holocaust, during which six million Jews were murdered by Nazis. Anti-Zionism, on the other hand, is the movement against Zionism. Zionism is an ideology that took root in the late 19th century among some Jews in Europe. It's the belief that Jews should have their own separate Jewish ethnostate, and it led to the creation of Israel in 1948, at the expense of the indigenous Palestinian population that lived there. Anti-Zionism challenges the very ideological basis of Israel as a nation-state. The movement existed decades before Israel, originally among Eastern European Jews who opposed Zionism's objective of moving Jews out of Europe. The Zionist project to this day is built on an ideology of supremacy that provides exclusive and superior rights only for Jews. Anti-Zionism rejects that ideology of Jewish supremacy and seeks to dismantle it. Now, it's important to note that not all Zionists are Jews. In fact, evangelical Christians are some of the most fervent Zionists in the world. It's a topic I reported on while in Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank. And just as not all Zionists are Jews, not all Jews are Zionists, although many are taught from a young age that supporting Israel should be part of their identity. For me growing up, being pro-Israel was a core part of my Jewish identity. I saw attacks on Israel as a personal attack. For decades, there's been a concerted effort to collapse the distinction between the Jewish religion and Zionism. And that significantly ramped up in the 2000s, after it became clear that Israeli leaders had abandoned all pretenses of seeking a political solution with Palestinians. You can no longer with a straight face say that Israel really wants peace, they support a two-state solution, they don't want to oppress the Palestinians. That's where we saw the birth of this new definition of anti-Semitism. That definition Lara's talking about is at the crux of this growing trend to conflate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. It's known as the IRA Working Definition of Anti-Semitism. IRA stands for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Who could be against an organization that's trying to remember the Holocaust and make sure people don't forget? That's a good thing. You would think. 
But in 2016, the definition IRA published included 11 contemporary examples of anti-Semitism, six of which relate to Israel, including that it's anti-Semitic to claim that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Side note, Israel was created as a Jewish ethnostate, treating Jewishness as a race, violently expelling the Palestinian majority, and enforcing what even Israel's leading human rights organization calls an apartheid system. But the IRA definition won't have that. The argument was made that all or most criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. We're going to put this in a definition. We're now going to take this definition and put it into law around the world. And we're going to use this as a blunt instrument to shut down once and for all these arguments. And that's where we are today. At least 40 governments have adopted the IRA definition, as well as hundreds of universities and NGOs around the world, even as scholars and dozens of human rights groups like Amnesty International decry its implementation. That's because the IRA definition has been weaponized to silence criticism of Israel, curtail freedom of speech, and foster anti-Palestinian racism. A 2023 report found dozens of cases where IRA was explicitly used to target those advocating for Palestinian rights throughout Europe, even for something as simple as liking a social media post that condemned Israel's actions. And it's happening in the US too. The US House of Representatives passed a resolution in late 2023 that equates anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism as defined by IRA. And the spirit of IRA is guiding organizations like the Pro-Israel Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, in how they track anti-Semitism. For instance, a recent ADL report found a huge spike in anti-Semitic incidents in the US after October 7th. But when you dig deeper into the numbers, you find that 40% of those incidents were simply pro-Palestine rallies, many of which, by the way, were led by Jewish organizers. An organization like the ADL have no qualms in just calling thousands of Jews anti-Semitic. The whole thing would be laughable if it weren't so insulting. And the IRA definition is finding its way into laws. As of 2024, four U.S. states explicitly have the IRA definition of anti-Semitism in their hate crime laws, with many more attempting to do so. There's a reason why the people who want to shut down Palestine Voices, Palestine protesters, want the IRA definition in the hate crimes law. It's being used to attack Palestinian voices or pro-Palestine voices pretty much across every part of society. And that's especially true on college campuses. U.S. universities have always been a place where anti-Israel speech has been curtailed. But in 2019, this practice of silencing pro-Palestine voices was legitimized when former President Donald Trump signed an executive order that enforced the IRA definition on college campuses. The biggest problem is a chilling effect. We see lawsuit after lawsuit and complaint after complaint targeting activists on campus, targeting administrators, targeting professors. We literally have cases based on somebody had a sign that said river to the sea. So you're, you're claiming it's a, it's a hate crime. By the way, it's worth noting that the guy who drafted the IRA definition later spoke out against how it's been weaponized by the right-wing Jewish community, writing that using IRA to define hate speech on campus is an attack on free speech and will not only harm pro-Palestinian advocates, but also Jewish students. Do you see this effort to silence any sort of criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic as harmful to Jews and dangerous? Absolutely. I have no problem saying absolutely clearly it is anti-Semitic to conflate Israel and Jews. And the ADL and I agree on that. The problem is that what the ADL also say, if you don't conflate Israel and Jews, you're an anti-Semite. And that's incredibly dangerous because my argument, which says you shouldn't go out 
and target a Jewish kid because they're Jewish and hold them accountable for what Israel is doing, but you're simultaneously insisting that every Jewish kid on campus support for Israel and Zionism is intrinsic to their identity. You are effectively conflating every Jewish person with the state of Israel. That is incredibly dangerous. And in the midst of all this, you have Israeli leaders promoting nationalist interests over fighting actual anti-Semitism around the world. There's a history of Israeli government leaders actually playing down very dangerous forms of right-wing anti-Semitism because some of the very same people that promote that are allies of the Israeli government, who they see as part of building a world of racism and fear and division. Take, for example, the far-right xenophobic prime minister of Hungary, or the Italian prime minister who herself was a member of a neo-fascist movement as a teenager, who have both found a friend in Israeli prime minister Netanyahu. And of course, former President Trump, who courted white supremacists in his base and called neo-Nazi protesters very fine people. But Israeli leaders like Netanyahu give all of them a pass because they have the right view on Israel. And in the face of the very real threat of anti-Semitism perpetrated by white supremacists, we've also seen some Israeli leaders implicate Palestinians as a similar threat to Jews. In 2018, a white supremacist killed 11 Jewish worshippers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in what was the worst attack on Jews in U.S. history. But listen to how this Israeli leader, speaking to that congregation a few days later, seemingly equated the white supremacist perpetrator with Palestinians, who had nothing to do with the attack. From Sderot in Israel, to Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, the hand that fires missiles is the same hand that shoots worshipers. We will fight against the hatred of Jews and anti-Semitism wherever it raises its head. He drew a direct line from the Pittsburgh shooter to Palestinian militants. There are real reasons why so many Jews are afraid for their own safety. And, and very often we see Israeli government Leaders weaponize that fear and misdirect it at Palestinians. Palestinians are not responsible for the Holocaust, and this, yet the state of Israel repeatedly uses the memory of the Holocaust to stoke anti-Palestinian racism and to justify its actions against Palestinians. And to shield itself from international law. When Israel was recently on trial for genocide against Palestinians in Gaza at the International Court of Justice, a court set up in the wake of the Holocaust to prevent the atrocities that Jews had experienced, many Israeli leaders accused the court of anti-Semitism. The Hague hearing, it's a show of shame, hypocrisy, and blatant anti-Semitism. The idea that the Israeli government is weaponizing the legacy of these international institutions to evade any consequences for the atrocities in Gaza, it's just, it's such a tragedy of history. Anti-Semitism is a very real threat to the millions of Jews around the world. But advocating for a free Palestine, holding a pro-Palestine rally, or demanding Israel be held accountable for war crimes are not anti-Semitic actions. Saying they are only leads to dangerous trends, suppressing free speech, allowing Israel to evade accountability, and obscuring actual anti-Semitism. They say occupation, trying to hide that it's a genocide I just wish a kid could grow up to see his mom I wish that I could do something about bombs dropped on Gaza Hurts so bad to know Where do my tax dollars go? 
from the tyrants See what goes on overseas and behind the scenes The little boy got his neck on the concrete Like George Floyd and the kid when he trying to breathe He threw a rock, but they got a tank Dead on the floor, he been praying for change You murder children, no, we not the same You got my people, they dying in chains Ain't nobody evil like the IDF No kidding, it's lost again, I might be next He got shot, peace, may he rest I seen it in the videos and photographs You shoot a kid and you laugh about it but nobody ever ask about it Too many bodies to count with simple mathematics Family's grown and it's so traumatic his home alone He was there his whole life Now everything is gone He don't got no shoulders going to be it for this edition of the 801. You've been listening to WYOX Community Radio 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 in the Catskills. And we stream on WIOXradio.org. And I'm Kent Garrett. I'll talk to you in the morning. And don't forget, the 801 does not leave the station. It is on the station. And uh, up next, uh, through the looking glass. Talk to you in the morning.